HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. You're here with your host, Heather Hyman. This week, we'll be speaking with two farmers, one of Montana, Melvin Brown, the founder of Almathia Organic Dairy. And then next, we'll be speaking with Neil Kirkhart of Iowa, fourth-generation farmer, been on his land since 1912. But I'll leave the rest of the information up to the farmers to talk to you about themselves. I think we've got Melvin on the line right now. Melvin, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. Nice to have you on. We are very um, much excited and looking forward to hearing about your production and a little bit about the history of um, how Almathia Organic got started. Let's tell our listeners. Well, uh, I, I was involved in embryo transplants. I'm from England originally, and I worked with cattle all over the world. And uh, unfortunately, I broke my leg and knee and couldn't be around cattle, so uh, we, my wife and I started uh, with goats. Um, so are the goats a little bit easier to handle on the farm than the cattle? Is that why it was easier for you to work with goats after the injury? Correct, yeah. Uh, goats, can't. I don't think they could hurt me, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they so can certainly a, jump and play, I know that. <laughs> yeah, they're very social animals, and uh, uh, we're a family farm, my wife and I, and uh, my son Nathan makes our cheese, and we're up under the Bridge of Mountains, just north of Bozeman, Montana. So you say your son makes your cheese, so I'm assuming that has much to do with their production of the goats to allow for this cheese-making process to occur. That's right. Uh I, I do the milking and the animal care. Uh, my wife's actually a high, teaches at the high school in Bozeman, and she does the marketing. And my son, uh, he makes the cheese. He raises uh, organic pork that we uh, feed the whey from the cheese to. And he also makes compost for all the gardeners and, uh, and landscapers around Gallatin Valley here in Montana. Well, that's definitely a nice community, a nice way to keep everyone connected. Um, now, when you say that the milk from the cow, um, I mean, I'm sorry, the milk from the goat, the whey, helps feed these uh, pigs that you raise, can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by whey and then how that is transformed into the pig's diet? Yeah, the whey is, uh, when we make the cheese, uh, the uh, whey separates from the curds, so we keep the curd to make the cheese, okay. and the whey is the byproduct which is uh, our, our goats produce very high butterfat, high-protein milk, so we have uh, really high-grade whey. It, it would be better if we dried it and put it into uh, the supplement industry, but, uh, but we have this byproduct, and we have uh, nice pasture for the pigs, so we bring the whey back to the farm and feed it to our uh, organic pork, which, uh, which keeps the cost of production down and the pigs do really well, really, really well on the way. So. Now, how much of uh, the pig's feed would you say is the whey itself? Because um, as far as I kind of understand it, it seems that the pigs do need um, some you know, grain in their diet and some grass. Um, what does the whey contribute to their diet? Oh, I would, I would say the whey is probably uh, uh, 50, 60 percent of the diet. Wow. They do, they, we do feed a triticale grain t- that's grown locally here, and uh, they're out on pasture, and they graze away just like cows do on the, on the pasture. We've got great pasture. Very so, nice. Uh, well, I that's... would say a, a good 50% of the diet is the whey. 
that definitely seems uh, like it could be very cost effective. Um, and I'm assuming then the whey has good nutritional benefits for the animal as well. Yeah, the, the whey, it still runs uh, quite high, probably 5 to 6% fat and uh, lots, of, uh, lots of potassium, uh, really healthy for the pigs. They, they love it. I mean, they'll knock you over to get to it. <laughs> well, not, not really, but... They, not like a cattle. <laughs> no, you just shout and they'll come running and, uh, and uh, get their way. So. so that means you've got happy pigs enjoying what they're eating, and that's definitely very important for a sustainable, humane product. Oh yeah, the pigs—they just—they uh, just love it out on pasture. We don't use any, you know, we're certified organic. Uh, the pigs farrow in a, a nice straw bedded area. They've got plenty of room to move around. Uh, people, a lot of people say you've got to have farrowing crates to raise pigs, and that's just not true. You take care. Of, you give the animals lots of space, and and they're really good mothers and take care of their babies. So. Well, your animals do still have shelter, though, for, um, I guess, and they're sometimes inclement weather there in Montana, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, they have shelters they go into, and we use lots of uh, straw bedding. Beautiful. Well, that's nice and comfortable. Now, um, one question I, I'm wondering, do you think that the whey has an effect on either the color and the fat contents of the pork um, itself? And then do you think that that translates into the taste of the finished product once the animal, the pig itself, goes to slaughter? Uh, we, we don't see any difference in the color of the uh, fat on the, on the slaughter animal. But the uh, taste is definitely, uh, it's just a superb uh, flavor. Really tender and uh, the, the flavor is just uh, unbelievable compared to uh, conventional pork that's out there. Beautiful, and I'm assuming that the way and the access to outdoor pasture is what lends itself to a better fat content in your pork itself. Yeah, and I, I think the, the you know the the meat to uh, fat ratio on the finished animal because they're out there exercising all day, uh, mm-hmm. they they graze when they want. Uh, we find the uh, like on the bacon, the, uh, it's got a high content of meat to fat. So even even feeding the whey and uh, which is a high fat. Uh, but uh, backing up on the way, uh, goat milk is all short-chain fats, mm-hmm. so the body doesn't recognize any, any fat in the goat milk as a fat. It recognizes sugar. So, Okay, that makes a little more sense. Now, um, just getting back to the history of um, your, your land and your farming production, when did you acquire the farm and the land that you are currently raising your goats and pigs on? Uh, we moved to this farm uh, 12 years ago. And the uh, people that were here before us were organic as well. So uh, that's definitely helped on some paperwork, I'm sure. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it saved a lot of time. And uh, my wife and I grew up on a farm in northern England, uh, and I'm, I would be the eighth generation I know of uh, farming. Wow! And my father was an organic farmer when that wasn't, con- you know, that was just the way we did things. It wasn't uh, organic; wasn't around at that time, so it was. Uh, we raise our own uh, vegetables, lamb, pig, beef. We saved our own seed for the uh, for the grains, and had hay. And I must say, I was lucky. I grew up uh, eating eating the very best food available. And uh, my children grew up the same way. And uh, my children never need an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm out every morning at 5 a.m. Uh, it can get cold here in the mountains. And I never get a sore throat, sick, or we just believe in uh, in good food, and uh, it translates into uh, good health. Well, that sounds great for your family, for sure. And it sounds like you're trying to kind of keep that philosophy going for anyone that's going to come in contact with the products you're producing. Um, I would uh, like to ask, what does your wife teach? Is it food related at all? Uh, no, my wife's uh, uh, she teaches special ed in the high school in Bozeman. She's been a special ed uh, teacher for many, many years. So. Nice. And well, getting back to the community, you said your son helps compost. So um, does that compost um, and I guess the, the soil, does that all go to farmers that are within um, you know, a close distance to your farm to help them um, kind of give the nutrients into their, to their soil? Yeah. I, we make a high-grade uh, uh, compost, and he makes, also makes compost tea that he sells, uh, sells to producers. And we use that on our hay and grain. 
Is there any kind of like community trading where you're kind of giving some cheese or some some uh, proteins to some of the um, produce farmers near to you? Is there any kind of trade off? Well, yeah, produce farmers uh, they come all the time for the compost, and that way I get uh, uh, seedlings for my garden already started and beautiful tomato plants and yeah, all it's that vegetable. time of year. We're actually broadcasting right now out of uh, two shipping containers that were very nicely um, helped funded by the Hearst Corporation, our sponsor today. And we have, on top of these shipping containers, plenty of uh, tomatoes and um, different kinds of herbs growing. And I think the tomatoes are just starting here as well. So it's nice to see that even though we're on opposite sides of the country, we're kind of all at the same point in our farming for the season. Even I get, I get a lot of people come out. We have probably three or four tours around the farm mm-hmm. with children, different the university groups. So even people with uh, with limited space have containers and come and get compost for their for their container garden. So uh, beautiful. We're, we're getting a great name for uh, high grade compost, and nice. it, well, it gives us lots of contact with lots of different people in the uh, in the area. So we we can trade. Uh, quite a few things so yeah and um, I'm assuming restaurants in your area if they can't compost themselves do they come to you guys as well um, we have great uh, always had great since we started the uh, the cheese production we've had great support from the chefs and the restaurants in the area and uh, uh, people just like to come out to the farm uh, people volunteer all the time come and help with the baby goats uh, it's just a, a fun family uh, community experience for everybody in this area. Well, that sounds great. I mean, community is what it's all about, sharing and caring, right? Yeah, last last year we did the, uh, through the Chef's Collaborative and our local uh, food co-op, we did the uh, community farm tour, and over 450 people showed up. We had great food. <laughs> it was a beautiful day, uh, great music, and I was I was shocked that so many people came to spend the day with us so it was a great that's beautiful who who was uh who was your music guest is it someone local or yeah there were local a uh, couple of local uh, bluegrass and country bands and uh it was just it was they just volunteered to come out oh. the uh the five chefs uh cooked the food up and we have great chefs here in uh in bozeman and big sky so it was a really fun day with great food and uh uh, we were overwhelmed with the support from the community. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun and uh, that you guys are an important part of your community. Um, and now, um, something I'd love to ask, I, I came across this, but many of our listeners probably don't know about how you came up with the name for your farm, Almathia. Where does that name come from? My wife came up with the name. It's from Greek mythology. Amalthea was the goat that fed Zeus. Hmm. And uh, from a mouth you get the cornucopia, the horn of plenty. So it fit in with the, with the food, and uh, we were. I had I actually had trouble pronouncing the name for six months. I'm I'm from Northern England. So. I was having trouble pronouncing it on my way over to the studio, but I think I got it down. <laughs> yeah, but it it fits right in with the cornucopia and the horn of plenty, and just producing the great uh, food. So yeah, making sure you get the best bounty from your harvest. So. That's, uh, that's pretty clever. We like that here. Um, I, I guess my next question to you is, I'm going to want to know to you, why is farming and farmers so important to the world today? Well, uh, I heard this morning on, on the radio that there's a billion, one billion hungry people in the world, and we're losing farmland through different... Uh, through building erosion. Real estate. <laughs> Real estate. Uh, it's becoming more important every day that, to produce food. I mean, not just food, but, but nutrient-dense food, food that's really good for the body. And I just, uh, I, I would, in this country, I would like to see no person go hungry and, and not just feed them, but feed them with food that's really good for them. So it's becoming more important every day. And, and we have lots of... You know, I'm encouraged by the amount of young people that come out to the farm to spend time with us that are interested in growing food and farming and cattle. And, and you know, I, I'm just so encouraged by the, uh, the young people's awareness of uh, high-quality food. 
Yeah, we actually have a program here on our network. It's Greenhorn Radio, and it's all about um, young farmers. So other people of the likes to, um, you know, keep farming alive and keep young people interested in these uh, productions that, you know, your expertise and experience has, you know, gotten you to the point. So you could be successful in your own um in your own specialization. But yes, I think that the most important thing is to keep these young farmers interested. And um, that's the only way we're going to be able to kind of keep this growing movement of sustainable, well-produced food alive. And that is what our country needs most right now. So keep those guys coming back and uh, share your secrets with them, because that's the only way we're going to be able to keep this going. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'd like to see the government put up, you know, with with the massive amounts of money that we, we spend I think they can set aside a small amount in the farm bill to make uh, loans available to young people that have an interest in getting back to the community, to the land, and producing this uh, this great food. I really like that idea. I wonder how, in this economic time, we can get those banks to allow for these loans to these young farmers, because it must not be easy to get any money borrowed at this time in our uh, economic state in this country. So um, I, th- I guess if you could write one farm issue into law, that's what it would be. Yeah, we we have a great uh, great senators here in Montana. One of them actually is an organic farm and has been for many, many years, 25 years. So, so uh, I hope as things progress in Washington uh, that there will be some thought to keep making uh, low-interest loans available to young farmers. Well, I hope so as well. And if that does become the case and it's more popular in Montana, we may just have to send some of these interested young farmers your way. (laughs) That's right. We we have lots of... uh, We have very few people on lots of land, so uh, it would... We would love to have people move out here and uh, learn learn and uh, move back to the different parts of the country and produce this great food. Definitely. And I guess um, that would lead into one of my next question is, who are the members of your production chain that you interact with that are most important to your survival? Uh, Well, our family, we're a tight family. Uh, We have lots of friends that help, volunteers. Mm -hmm. Our employees are just great. And, uh, you know, the chefs, the local chefs that come out and see the see the animals, see the farm, see what they're buying, and give us great advice. And uh, the Chefs Collaborative, which is, uh, in fact, we have quite a few chefs from New York in the Chefs Collaborative, and they're, they're just a great source of uh, information on what we need to produce. And uh, Yeah, maybe for our listeners that don't know, what exactly is the Chefs Collaborative? The Chefs Collaborative is a nationwide group that, uh, that uh, chefs try to help local producers or uh, Get great producers their product distributed to the uh, to the restaurants and chefs that require that uh, that fresh great food. All right, wonderful. So, how do, how does your product get distributed? Um, I mean, do you have products moving across the country straight from your slaughterhouse or from your farm? Our, our cheese plant's actually uh, just a couple of minutes off the interstate and. I have great friends uh, in Wisconsin at Organic Valley, mm-hmm. and their trucks move through Bozeman a couple of trucks a day almost. So That's lucky. <laughs> uh, so the trucks are quite happy to stop in. It just takes them 10 minutes off the interstate wow. to get loaded, and uh, their trucks, Organic Valley trucks, distribute throughout the country. So uh, that, That's perfect. We're very lucky to have... Uh, to have that connection and uh, get our product out there. Yeah, so I got to keep your community alive. You'll never know um, how helpful one of these uh, members of that community can be to your production. So that's great. Yeah. Um, now, uh, next, um, do you have a five or a ten year plan? I mean, I know you have a son working with you now. Do you? Yeah, we would like, you know, uh, I just leased 130 acres of my neighbor uh, next door to me that we're transitioning to organic. Uh, the next thing, we, what we'd like to be is a zero-emission dairy, so uh, wind or solar energy is our next big need. Wow. And uh, on a 10-year plan, I would like to make this very successful and maybe duplicate it. Uh, I used to live in Central America, so I would like to duplicate it in, uh, in Costa Rica, Belize, or one of the Central American countries, so we can help a village or an area in that country uh, do the same 
By teaching them about your production? Right. And well, even genetics, maybe move some uh, genetics to those, uh, to those countries. That's great. What is, what is the um, breed of, ca- of um, I'm sorry, goat that you're raising? Well, we have four, four breeds, uh, Sanin, Alpine, uh, La Mancha, and Toggenbergs. And we cross them, F1 crosses back and forth between the breeds. So, uh, so selective breeding, in a sense, to try and get the best of um, each of the characteristics of those right, different breeds? Right. And, uh, you know, we're, we're at about 5,600 feet here, so it, it does get a little cold in the winter. So we cross them up. I just find hybrid vigor. Uh, works well in the animals, and as I say, we have a really high high butterfat, high protein, really uh, excellent milk. So I think with the uh, great soil we have, the great food, and uh, the good genetics all kind of combined to make a uh, a great cheese. Wonderful. Um, so these four breeds are heritage breeds. Yeah, uh, yeah the La Mancha is actually the only true American breed. Uh, it was bred in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Alpines and Sanins are from the Swiss, and the uh, and we cross them. Right, because I was basically just wondering if any of um, the you know from your grandfather and from living in um, England, if any of those got um, if any of those breeds kind of you know stayed of interest to you, and kind of uh, you were able to find them here in the states, or, or any of the genetics were able to be transferred like that. No, I I didn't bring any. Uh, uh, Genetics from England, but we have the same, uh, the Sun and the Alpine were the main breeds in, in England. So, uh, from Switzerland, they spread out throughout the world, so I think they're, uh, they're well distributed throughout the world. All right, um, I have to know, is there anything about your farm that keeps you up at night? Uh, over the years, we yeah, had the cash flow over when we first got started, uh, that would be the only thing that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. I work pretty long days, so usually when I uh, <laughs> go when to I bed, you're head, out. <laughs> I, I sleep pretty well, but cash flow uh, in, in the beginning was always a problem. But, but uh, well, I, it seems that you have won some awards. If you'd maybe like to tell me about that, how, how, those awards and your recognition by, I think I even saw something about the Food Network tasting your cheeses. Has that helped at all? I would, I would seem to think oh, so. It's been, it's been great. Uh, the the Food Network came out last year and uh, did a feature on my son making the feta cheese, and uh, it it's just been great. We get orders from all over the country. People watch the uh, program. Uh, on the awards, I won the uh, uh, an award from the local Gallatin County here mm-hmm. as uh, as uh, an award for innovative farmer in the area. So. That was a great award. Nice. Uh, I'm sure that has much to do with how you've incorporated community and taken the goat uh, milk and the whey and kind of finding the best uses for all that's coming out of your production. Yeah, and, and uh, my, I've got 200 acres of another neighbor that he certified organic. He's a big, uh, he's one of the biggest farmers in the area, and he just uh, likes what we do and certified 200 acres so I could get my grain and hay right Beautiful. next to the farm without any transportation costs, so... Lesser carbon footprint. You know, as your trucks from Organic Valley, they're coming through your town anyway. You're only going next door to get your hay. So we, we like what we're hearing here. You're definitely in line with um, the way farming needs to be moving. And uh, we had a couple of award, uh, cheese winners at the uh, American Cheese Society in the past. So Great. Um, so right now you're producing just goat cheese, obviously, then, because that's uh, just all you have on your farm is the goats, right? Right. Yeah, we don't buy any milk. We produce our own milk, so we're in control of the the milk at all times, and and I think that helps helps with the quality of the uh, cheese we produce. Now, how did your son learn about cheese production? Because I know that's not easy to get into. Uh, he, well, he's always helped on the farm. He he went to uh, university here in uh, Bozeman. Uh, he's actually studied to be an engineer, but uh, he he likes being out at the farm and loves the animals. So. Uh, he learned from the cheesemaker we had uh, in the past that worked for us for five, six years. So he just nice. worked with them all the time. and uh, An apprentice turned to master. Yeah. Basically. And learned to be a great cheeseman. So. Now is he going to be the next generation on your farm? Oh, hopefully. Yeah. He, he really likes uh, 
sustainability and uh, you know he's got that young bright outlook on life and uh, mm-hmm. he can improve things as we go along so yeah how old how old how are we talking here he's uh, 24 years old so he's probably going to be the next big uh, helper in your marketing <laughs> to help your wife out a little bit yeah my daughter used to be really she's a really good marketer but unfortunately she moved to uh, just outside Washington DC so all right well maybe they'll open up a market for you there on the east coast then <laughs> Um, now, I would like to ask, how does technology hurt or help your farm? Oh, I, th- I think technology can help us with the, you know, the uh, solar panels, the new solar panels they've come out with that would would really help us with the energy costs. I mean, to run the coolers and the, uh, to keep the cheese uh, takes a lot of energy. Running the uh, machinery to milk the goats takes a lot of energy, so... I think technology can help us with the new wind technology or the uh, solar panels. Definitely. And to go one step backwards with the marketing as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, now, I think that, you know, there are definitely been some changing um, weather patterns. I mean, we're here in New York, and it has been cold and raining for the past two weeks of June. I mean, have you been noticing any changing global patterns where you are? And if so, how are these changing global patterns going to affect the food you grow? What we have noticed in the last, uh, we've had, this is the third really cold, wet spring we've had. And because uh, uh, rain in, in this part of the world is a, is a good thing, you know, snow, but uh, it's been colder longer, and the falls seem to, in the fall it seems to get warmer longer, so it, it's really strange. It's hard, uh, hard to get things figured at the moment, but we've got to keep an eye on, uh, on the uh, frost-free days and things like that, so it's definitely changing. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to affect us in the future at this time, but... Uh, Definitely, uh, this was the wettest spring on record, right where we are. So I think we must be. I mean, I don't. I'm not looking at an almanac here, but as far as I can remember, this has been the wettest month I've had. Yeah. So uh, there's in definitely a, definitely a uh, change in the weather pattern. So whether it's it's going to affect us adversely at this time, we're, we're not real sure. All right, and then. Um, do you have any um, interaction with wildlife on your farm? I mean, are your animals or anything ever threatened by, um, you know, predators on the outside? Uh, we have electric fence around the outside. Uh, this is like wildlife heaven. We have a, a stream runs through the farm, and we have that fenced off as a riparian area. We have eagles in the trees, hawks, owls, wow. deer, elk. <laughs> It's, uh, I just looked out in the with the pigs this morning. There was about fifty mallard ducks and about fifty thousand oh out in the pasture. So that's exciting. A, uh, we put up bat houses and uh, try to attract as many barn swallows as possible because mm-hmm. they eat so many insects. And it's actually uh, the wildlife's part of the success of the farm. I think that. It sounds like it. I mean, only because of the diversity of uh, the different people that, not the different people, the different animals that are on your lands, they actually can be helping in a sense. I've never had a, uh, uh, we have a lot of coyotes, mountain lion around, but I have a uh, guard dog at night, and we've never actually lost an animal to a, a wildlife, but we have lost animals to dog attacks where people abandon dogs out in the oh, country. Dear. So. And these electric fences, I mean, are your animals separated from the electric fence and it's only the people on the, I mean, the animals on the outside that would be affected by the electric fence? Yeah, we use electric fence to rotationally graze the animals to extend our grazing season. And the, the deer, they just hop over the fence they, and they don't bother the fence at all. So. Wow. <laughs> the, other, the other little critters uh, just go underneath it. So, so uh I'm just looking out at I'm just looking out at the window now, and there's pheasants strutting around at the moment. So hmm. we try to attract, you know, we, uh, we keep the uh, we don't graze uh, or we don't farm fence post to fence post. We we try to leave uh, cover and trees and and uh, just make it nice for all the uh, animals we have around. I uh, I say I grew up on a farm and I just love uh, all the I get up to milk in the morning and the dawn chorus all the birds are singing it's hmm. it's one of the uh, nice things about being a farmer. Yeah, it sounds pretty peaceful. 
um, but you do have long days. But at least you sleep well once uh, you get to go to bed. <laughs> now we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here. But if you had uh, one last thing that you'd like to address, or something that you'd like to tell our listeners about your farm and the production, um, we'd love to give you um, a minute to just give us a uh, one thought. Yeah, we uh, on on with being organic here, we have the ground. Uh, the production of the food stuff just the way we want it. We feed probiotic to the goats and uh, try to feed as much omega-3 in the feed as possible through the grains. And I think that all contributes to being a uh, uh, just a great cheese. We Beautiful. love we love what we do and uh, you gotta love what you do to be able to do it every day. That's for sure. Yeah, and we just like to get our cheese to. Uh, people that appreciate what we do and uh and i say uh, as long as we keep farming like this uh, we keep the uh keep the next generation uh moving in the right direction wonderful melvin it's been such a pleasure um we do hope to have you on again at some point to talk about you know some of the exciting things that happen on your farm uh we're going to take a short break we'll be back with neil kirkhart from iowa and uh we'll be speaking with you again soon thank you Thank you, Heather, and have a great weekend. You as well. Well, me and my uncle went riding down South Colorado, West bound. We stopped over in Santa Fe. That down the point, just about halfway. And you know, it was the hottest part of the day. Well, I took the horses. Got to the star, went to the bar room, ordered drinks for all. Three days in the saddle, and you know my body hurt. It's been summer, I took off my shirt. And I tried to wash all some of that dust to Hello, Neil Kirkhart. How are you today? I'm doing well. Nice to have you with us. Neil Kirkhart, you're with Fescue Nullstock Farm in Iowa, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Beautiful. Well, we're very happy to have you on as a guest today. Um, I'd like to give you a chance to start off and tell our listeners a bit about your farm and production and how you became a farmer. Okay. I'm uh, 26 years old. We... uh have, own and operate a 340-acre farm here in southeast Iowa. It's uh, a mixture of rolling hills and, and open prairie ground. Uh, on that ground, we raise uh, Angus and semi-Angus cattle, uh, registered Hampshire sheep, uh, commercial Dorset sheep, and uh, large black hogs. Um, we've been in uh, farming our ground. Uh, we Our family started in about 1912, and... Uh, in conjunction with that, we do raise some row crops, such as corn and soybeans and wheat and oats, so it's a fairly diversified operation. Sounds like it. And then you said 340 acres. Yes, that's correct. So you're able to feed your hogs and um, your door sets and your cattle some of the crops you're raising as well? Does that fit into um, your production there? Uh, yes, it does. Yeah, we, pr- we produce nearly all of our feedstuffs for our livestock. Um, other than some vitamin and mineral uh, packages that we have to supplement with, uh, most of our feedstuffs are strictly raised uh, from our uh, farm. Now, um, what wh- what were the things that you know led you to raising these breeds of cattle and the sheep and the large black hogs, for example? In particular, with the large black hogs, one of the reasons why I got into them is because. Uh, we wanted a way to market our grain instead of shipping it to the river. We wanted to feed it and keep the nutrients there on the farm to enrich the soil. The other thing is I've always been really uh, interested in older genetics, um, meaning genetics that were dying out that had real, uh, I feel like they had a, a value to the agricultural industry. And uh, particularly these hogs, I think were really interesting because there's only 300 of them left in the world. Mm-hmm. And I, really wanted to help preserve that. Wow. So how did you acquire the genetics for the large black hogs? We actually acquired these hogs uh, from Ted Smith down in Laurel, Mississippi. He was one of the few breeders that uh, kept the genetic line as uh, more modern lines came into existence since the 1960s. 
and uh, he just continued to raise them. They're a forage-based hog, which they can consume about 60% of their diet in grasses and legumes, rather than having to be fed uh, solely corn and soybean meal. That definitely so keeps cost of production down in these times of the raising corn and soy and wheat and all of that. This is all we hear from the farmers. Grain yeah. feed costs, they just continue to go up. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Well, it's a good thing that you are coming from a diversified uh, land supply. Now, um, I, I wanted to ask, how did you become connected to this part of the world? I mean, where you are in Iowa, this is, I know you said you um, I have been on this farm for quite some years now. Um, what brought you to Iowa? I'm not specifically sure why our family moved to Iowa. We, uh, my, mom's end of the, my mom's side of the family came from Germany in the 1870s um, and my dad's side of the family came actually from Maryland we came to Maryland from uh, uh, Germany in the 1700s and uh, we moved to Iowa here my dad's family in 1856 and we've been in the county ever since we've been in a couple different locations but uh, it's just I guess a great place to live and it's been part of our heritage we've our family both sides of my house have farmed for centuries Wow, centuries. So you have some secrets to the trade, huh? Are there any that you'd be willing to share with us? Well, I don't know about secrets. It's just uh, it's just a passion and a love for the land and a love for the livestock and, and for family and, and what we do. Um, now, um, in terms of the, the, you said something about commercial um, production for your Dorsets, um, and then you were talking about your, your cattle and your hogs. Who are, you know, your customers? Who's your, your marketplace? Um, who are you producing for? Um, currently, we're, we're really, we're trying to move away from selling through the sale barns, which are still fairly prevalent throughout the Midwest here. And I'm sorry, what exactly is a sale barn? A sale barn is a place where uh, farmers go to take their livestock and they're basically auctioned off hmm. and uh, they have no uh, they have no influence really on price the Chicago Board of Trade is what influences their prices on on those commodities particularly cattle and hogs although um, sheep are not currently traded on the Chicago Board of Trade so we'd really like to be able to move away from that um, I'm trying to actively uh, promote my uh, my livestock as far as for breeding and also for uh, their meat quality and, and direct market those to consumers. Nice. So basically, um, you're going to need a little infrastructure for that. Exactly. Exactly. So um, and right now, who would you say um, are the most important members of the production chain that you interact with to keep your production alive? Really, those are going to be the, the customers that I direct market my product through, uh, that I've got a small a pool of, of uh, individuals who really uh, who really uh, uh, feel like I'm raising a quality product and uh, really appreciate what I'm trying to do, and then also the customers that I'm that base that I'm trying to uh, establish with other livestock producers that really believe in our breeding program. So those both of those entities are very very essential to our survival yeah. in the future because they will come back for more and hopefully spread the good word and bring other contacts to you as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess that all comes from the taste of the product too. Can you speak to some of the take um, to the unique taste profiles of the breeds that you're raising? Well, uh, with the lamb uh, in particular, a lot of our livestock is still uh, heavily influenced with corn. We're slowly moving away from that to more of a grass-based and legumes, which I think is going to bring out a little bit uh, different flavor. But most of the meat is very mild and tender. Uh, it's very juicy, uh, and it has uh, good marbling and just an overall uh, a very, uh, a very savory-type uh, flavor. Now, I know you're definitely excited about the black hogs you're raising, especially since they were in such limited, um, you know, production numbers, you know, until you, I guess, started producing them as well. Um, now, what drew you to the black hog other than just the small um, amounts of numbers of animals that have been in production right now? Was there something about the black hog that you think will really help, you know, market that meat? Or was it really just about raising the number of these hogs in, you know, American farming? Well, it wasn't. It was in conjunction with trying to increase numbers, trying to increase 
the survivability of this breed. Biodiversity uh, was, in our food supply is obviously important to you then? Yeah, that, that is very important. But um, two, I think that uh, they were supposed to have uh, meat quality that uh, that is adequate uh, with the Burke or with the Berkshire breed and uh, also the, uh, the litter size and the docility of these hogs uh, I thought was very, very uh, good. The other thing is these hogs have not been altered in any way by commercial livestock production, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of the hogs are here in Iowa that are raised in, in uh, modern finishers. Mm-hmm. So they're a heritage breed. Exactly, exactly. All right. Um, now, why to you personally is farming and farmers so important i mean you come from a long lineage of farmers it sounds like i mean when you say centuries you're not messing around you've got a long history in farming yeah well i think why uh farming is so essential is because farmers own a lot of the the united states a lot of the land mass and and that is uh one of the most precious valuable resources that we actually have is the earth and how they preserve and they care for and they uh, try to be good stewards of that land. I think that's essential. The other thing is, is farming is one of the most basic uh, things we need for survival. I mean, to produce food on a daily basis, and you know, we really do. It's, it's. I know it's almost become cliche, but America, the American farmer, really does feed the world. I mean, we're much of the world is dependent upon us. You know, so our survival is is essential for really the survival of the human race. Now, I know that you were saying that you um, produce a few crops there. Are you exporting any of these crops that you're not, you know, using for just the feed for your animals? I mean, who is, uh, the, who is the buyer for these crops? For the, you said, I think, weed and soy. Yeah, a lot of that crop is still uh, hauled to the river. When I say the river, the, it's the Mississippi River. Um, unfortunately, a lot of that is shipped uh, down to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. And uh, it is actually exported uh, internationally. Um, like I said, I, I would really like to get away from that. Mm-hmm. We're going to probably convert more of those acres from crop production into uh, grass. And what we're going to do from there is, is try to raise more livestock. Um, on grass. I think, on grass, yeah. I think uh, I think that it's, it's really bad for our soil to continue to export so much of our soil nutrients. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the reasons why I was uh, wanting to feed more of our corn, particularly to the hogs, because uh, they do have a lot higher... Uh, concentrate our requirement than what uh, ruminants would have. Definitely. Um, now, um, I know that there has been a, a, a much different um, June than what I'm used to seeing here in New York. Have you seen a, a big change in the weather this year or in the past few years where you are in Iowa? The weather is, we've seen a significant uh, change in our weather. Um, last year at our local uh, news station they reported uh, annual rainfall at 67 inches our normal annual rainfall is only 36 inches this year we're almost to 30 inches of precipitation Uh, we've been exceptionally wet there's thousands of acres of land here in southern Iowa particularly southeast Iowa that have not been planted yet Uh, I really we are seeing a a definite uh, definite shift now whether from a scientific basis whether this is global warming or or climatic change I'm not for certain yet. I mean, it's too early to tell, but... But it's it is still a change, and it's definitely significant. I mean, we feel like we're here in New York. We feel like we're living in Seattle. <laughs> it's just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Now, do yeah. you think that these changing, you know, global weather patterns are going to be affecting the food that you raise? Exactly. I think uh, I think certain parts of Iowa are going to have a very, very difficult time continuing with uh, the corn and soybean rotation. I mean, I think we're going to have to look at different crops or potentially uh, go back to more of a grass-based livestock uh, type uh, production system rather than uh, raising corn and soybeans if this continues. I mean, uh, those farmers can't get their crops in and and it's just so wet, you know, Hmm. they're going to have to do something different. Definitely. And I mean, I guess the grass would lend itself okay to more precipitation. And I'm assuming, do you have a variety of grasses there in Iowa that would um, contribute to like, you know, um, better tasting, you know, finished product? And how do you select the grasses that you'd be growing? Is it just because it would be um, a certain grass for your part of the world that would grow better or um, a grass that would maybe lend itself better to the you know nature of your farm? Well, 
lot of it is uh, based on the climate. One of the things about Iowa is that we have very extreme weather patterns. We can get down into the 20 below range without windshield in the winter, and we can go all the way to plus 100 degrees in the summer, which is a very wide variance. Um, so we need grasses that are really hardy. Okay. Uh, the main grasses we raise are like orchard grass, uh, timothy, uh, brome, and uh, fescue. Fescue is very, very prevalent down here, although it's not necessarily a very de- or desirable grass. So. Um, now, um, this is something that always comes up that I find really fascinating. The interaction of wildlife with the animals that you have raised on your farm. What um, kind of interaction do you see with wildlife? And if any, what kind of effect does that have on your production? Well, Southeast Iowa is, is I don't know whether you know this, is, is kind of a mecca for white-tailed deers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have a huge white-tailed deer population, which has actually increased significantly within the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, the other thing we have is a abundance of wild turkey. Um, I think the two of the species that we have that are declined are the uh, ringneck pheasant and the bobwhite quail. I think as we if we go to more of a grass-based uh, agricultural system, I think those numbers will increase. Um, row cropping some of those marginal land here in Iowa has really helped their, or excuse me, really hindered their populations. But uh, there really is a, an abundance of wildlife here. We've even got bobcat now that are quite prevalent. Have you ever had any losses of animals due to these crazy bobcats, or do they not get that close? Um, typically, we haven't. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I, I always hate uh, saying this, but I haven't lost any of my sheep or any of my hogs to uh, predators at this point, but I I hate to say that. Good, you know, so I'm going to knock on wood for you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> They start having that, yeah. Well, I'm in front of a wood table, so you can't hear it, but I gave it a little knock for you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> we'll keep the superstition alive for today. <laughs> um, now, uh, what are the goals of your operation? I mean, do you have a five- or ten-year plan? or One of my main goals is, being such a young producer, is really to find my niche um, within the livestock uh, industry and trying to develop a uh, quality reputation with integrity and honesty for my product and the quality of that product. And so I really do hope to find that niche and be able to uh, expand my marketing uh, plan, and uh, hopefully we can add a few more acres and uh, and just kind of go from there. Now, so that goes back to the, uh, you know, whole thing of infrastructure. You need, I guess, a slaughterhouse and some kind of trucking and marketing and all that fun stuff. Have you begun to tackle that for, you know, um, instead of bringing, you know, your animals more for, like, the commodity exchange to um, bringing it more to, like, you know, your own marketing of the product like we, we talked about a little earlier? Yeah, we're, I'm actively trying to, uh, to market uh, our product here in the state of Iowa and uh, hopefully nationally very soon. And I hope that uh, that, uh, that will pick up. We have been talking with some various uh, uh, processing plants for uh, potential uh, uh, harvest and fabrication of our animals. So, yeah, those are definitely things that we're, we're actively trying to do. Perfect. Well, it's definitely um, a step in the right direction, especially with these black hogs. I mean, 300 in production, I mean, about a year ago or whenever it was that you acquired this breeding stock is such a small number that I'm assuming the American Livestock Breeds Conservancy would have that as almost like a critically endangered. I mean, I'm not looking at any statistics, so I can't speak for the you know term that they would use, but that is a pretty endangered breed. Yeah, it most certainly is. I mean, uh, and that's, when I say 300, that's in the world. I mean, that's not just in the United States. There's very, very few of these hogs. All right. Well, we better make sure that people love the characteristics of this hog so we can kind of keep their breed alive because that's uh, what's most important as a value of uh, Heritage Radio Network and Heritage Foods USA, one of, uh, you know, the foundational sponsors of this network. So um, I I definitely appreciate, you know, um, your passion for keeping these breeds alive. And, um, like, how do you feel um, the consumers can best help producers like yourself remain in business? I mean, is it that they have to pay a higher premium for a product like you're raising, or is it just, you know, spreading the good word? Well, I think, I think uh, 
both of those are valid points. I think really is we need to be conscious when we go to the grocery store and when we uh, take that pick up that package or whatever we buy. I think we need to uh, really inquire as to who produced it and and, and understand that uh, these smaller farmers, they do have higher production costs, so they, they do require a little bit more uh, price compensation for their product. That is definitely, uh, definitely something that I would like the American consumer to understand. The other thing is, is, uh, is maybe not all the time, but, but do try to, uh, to buy local, locally raised food or, or uh, at least know the source of your food and where it's coming from. And I think that that uh, really speaks to uh, a lot of these health, or excuse me, these food scares that we currently have. I mean, oh, yeah. knowing how it was raised, um, the production standards that were used, both during uh, the animals' growth process and as well as during uh, the product or the harvest and fabrication, I think is is essential. So, uh, I think just the American consumer educating themselves as to how this food is produced is yeah. really essential. If you don't mind me um, distilling that down into one of uh, Heritage's favorite terms, it's traceability. And traceability is key. It's being able to really know the source. Just as if you know the source from where you got those genetics for the black hogs, the consumer needs to know who is the farmer that raised their food, where those genetics came from, what food that animal is eating. I mean, and once we're able to really educate, just like you say, our consumers, then we are definitely going to continue to move this into the right direction and hopefully raise these numbers of the black hogs in production and other dying breeds. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wonderful. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up shortly, but if you have one last word that you'd love to get out to our listeners, um, we'd love to give you about one more minute to give us a, a little something that you'd like to share. Well, I think the uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on today, and I really have a passion for, for doing this, and I really hope that, um, that you can that you will uh, you will really think about what you uh, go to the uh, food uh, the marketplace and, and purchase and uh, really realize that there's a whole production chain behind that food and that it's uh, essential to know that traceability um, back so that you can keep your family safe so yeah, it's not just about the final product in the market. It's knowing that that piece of tenderloin came from the you know top part of this pig, and this pig was raised on this farm, and it can be traced back to you know you, the farmer who got into it from his father, which is why we have this farm report program on the Heritage Radio Network, and which is why we were so happy to have you on today. Uh, we very much look forward to having you on as a guest again, and hope that you enjoy your weekend. So thank you for your time and for enlightening us on what it is you're doing in Iowa, Neil. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.